Thanks for listening. I'm bringing back one more episode, a new classic from the first 100 episodes, and one that generated a lot of positive comments at the time. Next week will be a brand new discussion. Now to the intro. Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, developers, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, who gives you innovation training your customers will love you for. Get ready to take your career to the next level, for the doctor is in. Hello, everyone. This is Chad, your host and founder of Product Innovation Educators, where product managers learn to become product masters. This discussion is about voice of the customer, or VOC. When it comes to VOC experts, there are really only a handful of people that can match the experience of my guest today. He's helped hundreds of companies with VOC research. He is also the author of several published papers on the topic and a contributor to professional books, as well as a guest lecturer at MIT, Harvard, and other top schools. During the interview, you'll hear us discuss what is VOC, how to focus on the experience of the customer, and a step-by-step approach to using VOC, Voice of the Customer. Find the summary of the discussion and the transcript at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 071. Now to the interview. Jerry, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovator. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Chad. So you have considerable experience with Voice of the Customer research and doing Voice of the Customer work for clients. And you're a good go-to person to learn more about this. So let's just start with framing what voice of the customer is. How, how would you describe that? Well, in a nutshell, it is, a, it is the process of gathering and understanding customer needs. And while that sounds ridiculously simplistic, it actually isn't. Uh, there are so many pitfalls or so many rookie mistakes that people make in trying to understand customer needs that an entire science has grown up in this around this area. So let's talk about what the, those, maybe not yet the pitfalls, but some of the things that are mistaken for voice the customer. Because I know when, I, when this has come up, and especially early in my career as a product manager, when I really had no idea what voice of the customer actually meant, I didn't know if we were talking about specifically voice. Does this mean we are asking customers questions? I didn't know what that boundary was, what was, and what is not. So let's talk about what is not in voice of the customer, maybe. Okay. Well, uh, a quick answer to your question. Uh, Yes, voice, that is direct questioning, is one of the ways, but certainly not the only way to get at customer needs. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of misdefinitions. Uh, I think to the naive, uh, voice of the customer means asking the customer what they want. Sounds logical, doesn't it? But it turns out that's actually one of the worst ways to understand it. Because if you ask a question in that way, uh, Mr. or Ms. Customer, tell me what you want, tell me what you need. For some reason, the customer thinks they're supposed to go into solution mode Mm -hmm. and start describing the exact features and the exact solutions they want. Now, unfortunately, most customers aren't all that creative. And so all they do is play back features and solutions that already exist in the marketplace. And if you take that as your guidance, uh, almost by definition, you will never do better than a me too product, right? You'll create a product based on what the customer told you they want, and it will have everything that already exists. And they'll look at you and say, that's not what I wanted. So there are far better ways than simply asking the customer what they want. And the, if I could sort of encapsulate that, I'd say, 
talk to them about experiences. Hmm. What you want to do is get them to tell you stories about what it is they're trying to do, what made it easy, what made it hard, what gets in the way. And that's really the best way to capture customer needs. Don't ask them what they want and don't ask them what they need. Now, another big misdefinition isn't so much a misdefinition, uh, but simply a different use of the words. Huh. Uh, what it today, well, people make a lot of errors in this regard. Many people think that voice of the customer simply means any kind of market research at all. That's huh. getting the voice of the customer. Not so. Voice of the customer, and I'll define it in a little bit, is actually uh, a real subset of the entire field of market research. In a lot of companies today, voice of the customer has come to mean what we used to call uh, customer satisfaction measurement, huh. meaning it's talking to your existing customers about what they like and dislike about doing business with you. And that's been embodied in the net promoter score. And I know right. that Abby Griffin, one of the people who coined the term voice of the customer, has expressed frustration that uh, when she goes to conferences and people ask one another, do you do voice of the customer? And the other person says yes. The next question is always, what's your net promoter score? Ouch. And that's really not it's a wonderful thing to do but it's not what abby meant by voice of the customer right and jerry just for everyday innovators that are listening that aren't familiar yet with nps the net promoter score can you just summarize that for us yeah it it was um uh and i'm going to forget his name but it was a new measure uh invented by a uh, partner at bain at at bain and company mm-hmm. um uh which he trademarked uh, where you ask, it, it, rather than asking customers how satisfied are you, he found that a better measure was how likely would you be to recommend our product or service to a friend or a colleague. And he uses a 10-point scale, and I think the measure is the percentage who gave a 9 and 10, my, or maybe it's an 8, 9, and 10, minus those who gave a 0 through 3. And that's called your net promoter score. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been somewhat controversial. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's another good measure. Nothing wrong with it. It's been a little discredited as the – I think the name of the paper was the one number you're going to need. And that's been a little bit debunked. But it's a very reasonable thing to do. Yeah, if it, you boil it down to what is the most important question you could ask your customers, would you refer us to, a, to someone else? Yeah, pr- pretty good to know. But as you've said, it's not it's not in the voice of the customer collection of things, of tools that we would have. So what is that boundary? Okay. Well, the way Griffin and Hauser, and, and, and I'm going to refer to Abby Griffin and John Hauser, the term mm-hmm. voice of the customer was the name of a paper published in 1993 in the journal Marketing Science, co-authored by Abby Griffin, uh, who got her doctorate at the MIT Sloan School, and John Hauser, who is a professor there and was her thesis advisor, happens to be a co-founder of our company. Um, uh, And it came out of her doctoral dissertation. John had published a very famous paper called The House of Quality, Mm -hmm. which was the first important English language uh, description of a Japanese product development technique called QFD or quality function deployment. And in order to do QFD, you have to start off with a detailed list 
of customer needs. Mm-hmm. Well, Abby decided that it would be a uh, uh, that it might make a good doctoral dissertation to study how do companies understand customer needs in support of new product development and innovation in general. And so that was her dissertation. She won the thesis prize at MIT that year. And so she and John decided to turn that into this very famous journal paper that essentially coined the term and created the field. Now, they offer a a four-part definition of voice of the customer. And I won't go into great detail because we only have a half hour, but it was uh, a detailed list of customer wants and needs. Uh, and, and that means in excruciating detail. It's not uncommon to find a hundred or more unique need statements. Uh, expressed in the customer's own words, the importance there was that Abby observed a tendency to want to take what the customer said mm. and to kind of restate it or twist it into company vernacular or industry vernacular. And she observed that every time you do that, you risk losing some of the meaning. So the second part is expressed in the customer's own words. The third part is organized into a hierarchy. And the issue there was simply that product developers can't deal with 100 unique needs simultaneously. So product developers borrowed the old idea of an affinity diagram, which Mm -hmm. is just a fancy term for organizing the needs into groups that logically fit together uh, in order to make it a more manageable data set. And then, of course, prioritized by customers in terms of how important are each of the groups of needs and what's the current level of satisfaction. So that was their definition going forward. And since that time, we and many others have come up with all kinds of techniques to go through that four-step process or, or to teach people to go through that process for new product development. So let me ask you then where I started earlier with my confusion when I first ran into this concept about the customer's own words. Because there's tools that I would look at and say, yes, those are VOC, like ethnography, where we're, where we're observing users. And we may, after we do observations, we do some interviews to ask questions, verify what we were seeing and like. But we're getting insights that aren't expressed in their words. Yes. So wh- where does that fit in? Well, you, you brought up ethnography. One of the issues is that some no, some needs are unspoken. They refer to them as latent needs or unarticulated needs or unspoken needs. How do we get at those? And the answer generally is through observation. And so hence the the term ethnography, which was drawn out of the field of anthropology, became another one of the tools in the tool bag of VOC practitioners. Now, I found that once you observe something that the customer is not discussing, You can often, by pointing it out to them, get them to articulate the need in words. Sometimes they don't, though, and and you're forced to put it into words. Uh Uh, Because in order to prioritize needs or organize needs relative to others, they all have to be in some kind of a written format. Uh, But, yes, there is this certainly this distinction between the spoken and the unspoken need. Okay. And dealing, as you said, the the latent needs and trying to get to that information. So I I like the framework that you offered earlier about what is VOC and you're talking about experiences that users have had, right? Consumers have had. Getting them to tell stories about, you know, what made it easy, what made it hard, what gets in the way. When it comes to favorite approaches to implementing VOC, 
What do you do as a practitioner? Okay. Well, I mean, we pretty much follow uh, the prescription or the process laid out in the Griffin and Hauser paper. And so it starts off with a series of one-on-one interviews. Uh, One of the things that they note is that it is better to do interviews individually than in groups, which was a uh, and it, you know an interesting research question. Mm-hmm. Part of their reason had to do with efficiency. Part of it had to do with the ability to go off on tangents and keep mining for new needs that you haven't heard before. Um, so we start with usually face-to-face interviews. In some cases, they have to be done by telephone. Mm-hmm. And in many studies, in fact, the vast majority of studies, we do like to do some ethnography. Uh, the re, you know, in an ideal world, I think I do all my interviews ethnographically. Problem is, it becomes prohibitively uh, expensive and uh, time intensive. So, what we usually do is maybe, you know, five to ten ethnographic interviews where we're observing someone actually using a product or service, and then asking them some questions afterward to fill in if need be. And then the rest of the interviews might be done face to face either in their office or in some kind of a central market research facility. So, and, and now the, the other parts of that process, they, uh, one thing that they show empirically is that you will do two to three times, you will be two to three times as thorough in capturing needs if you record the needs, transcribe them, and then analyze from a transcript, as opposed to the more usual process of note-taking. You know, the idea of uh, I'm accompanied by a colleague who is, quote, the scribe who will record needs. And they show empirically you'll do far better by recording, transcribing, and analyzing from a transcript. I'm curious, have you or or your team put that to test before? Oh, all the time. All the time. Uh, Sometimes, well, well, first of all, we teach a uh, two-day course in voice of the customer. And we've taught it hundreds of times now uh, and all over the world. And that's actually one of the exercises where we play a video clip uh, about seven and a half minutes long, uh, ask people to take notes on needs they hear, uh-huh. and then we give them a transcript and ask, and ask them to highlight it. And the number in general, the average person captures seven to eight needs from note-taking and usually 15 or 16 from highlighting. It's literally twice as many needs. Wow. Uh, plus, you get to capture them more verbatim. That's a pretty good test. Yeah, it, 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 and it works every time. I mean, you know, oh, there, there are a few great note takers in the world. But, um, you know, people talk fast and you miss it. And you have these cases of people kind of rewording the needs. It, it's, it's pretty compelling. And when you say one-on-one interviews, do you literally mean one person who is asking the questions to one one consumer, one user? Uh, when we do it, yes, it's usually one-on-one. I have to say most of the clients who we train still like to do a two-on-one, uh-huh. which is perf- perfectly fine. You know, for instance, they might send out a marketer and an engineer, you know, the right. techie, techie in the suit, and they interview them together. And my my sense is the marketer is usually asking most of the questions, but the other person can certainly chime in with an additional uh, question here or there. Mm-hmm. So two on two on one works just as well. But the idea is that ideally there will only be one customer being interviewed at a time rather than a group of right. customers. Right. 
Okay, good. Yeah, thanks for the clarification. The and I've been more comfortable with that two-on-one situation myself. Yeah. Um, although I admit, I'm if I'm involved, I'm usually taking notes along the way, so I, I yeah. might have to uh, uh, look into this more. But the two I like because it allows one person to maybe more attuned to what's not being said, right? What's going on with the body language? What was left out? And 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 observe things in a different way. Also, many of the products we work on are have very you know high tech components to them. I mean, mm-hmm. they either are high tech products or they're heavily engineered products or medical devices. And so uh, having a technical person in the room is sometimes helpful in terms of getting uh, clarification of what a technical customer might be talking about. Yeah. I think the other thing, and I'm sure you have some experience with this, is that helps to pull back what the customer actually wants into the engineering team in a real way. Because there's been too many instances where the research is done, the research team goes back to engineering or development, says what's needed, and engineering or development basically says, no, they don't need that, right, to, to, uh, to, right. to some extent. I found that human beings are incredibly clever at kind of twisting what was said to confirm some underlying belief that they hold. Mm, right. And so, yeah, I really think it's uh, helpful to have the engineering people and the R&D scientists be part of the engineering team so that they're hearing everything firsthand and aren't able to just sort of explain things away because it doesn't fit their view of the world. And it helps them have that firsthand experience and make a better product for it. Absolutely. Good. Good. Okay. And another question on doing the actual interviews. Mm -hmm. And this is the Abby and John paper that did the statistical modeling of how many interviews one should have, right? And what's been your experience with that? How many interviews are you looking at? You said five to 10 you would like to do ethnographically if possible. And then what do you do by phone or in person? Okay. Uh, I would say that uh, the vast majority of our studies end up with a sample size for the qualitative interviews, not the quantitative prioritization, but for these qualitative interviews, we usually end up doing something like 30 to 40. Okay. Now, that's a little different from what Griffin and Hauser say in the paper. What they state unequivocally is uh, from their analysis is that 10 interviews produce about 70% of the needs, 20 interviews produce about 90% of the interviews, and 30 interviews produce virtually 100% of the interviews. Now, theoretically, you never get to 100%. It's asymptotic. But um, uh, they were working in a very simple category. It was basically picnic baskets or coolers which has almost no segmentation that I can think of. Most of the categories we work in are quite a bit more complex Mm. and have a lot lot of segmentation. So we found as a practical matter, it's good to bump those numbers up a little by about 10. So in general, you know, a really simple study, we can get away with 20. Most of our studies are 30 to 40. The only exception to that are either either categories with tons of segmentation or more likely big global studies. And the reason is, is really a practical one. It makes, it makes no sense to go to the expense of translating all your interview materials into French and German and Mandarin and, uh, uh, you know, Japanese, and then go there and do three interviews. So we usually do at least eight to 10 per country. So if it's a four country test, you know, then, 
you know, U.S. plus four, uh, uh, you know, non-U.S. countries, then those those studies might get up to 50 or 60 interviews. Okay. But but the good news in all of this, and I think what was really important about Griffin and Hauser's study is you don't need large sample sizes to good do good VOC. Now, right. wh- why is that important? Well, first of all, why was that a surprise? I think it's because we all took statistics courses and know something about statistical uh, significance. But this the is law of large numbers. There you got it. And 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 but this is qualitative research. Right. So statistics don't describe qualitative research. The other reason it's important is, you know, if you're making cornflakes, you can do hundreds of interviews really cheap. If you're making uh uh you know, ball bearings uh, for a conveyor system or a medical device, uh, those interviews become prohibitively expensive. And so in any kind of a B2B category, the ability to capture the voice of the customer without having to do hundreds of interviews is a, a really important uh, uh, attribute. And so this idea of 30 to 40, which is still not trivial, but uh, it, it makes the whole process more practical. Okay. And I bet some listeners might be asking about this segmentation dimension. So I, I want to cover that with you because the way I think about that is when you're doing 30 to 40 interviews, you might uncover in that process some segments that have different needs that aren't relevant in the target segment maybe you're looking at. And maybe there, there's some new opportunities there to go after. Um, is, is that the context here that you, you find happening? Well, yes and no. Yes, sometimes you find segments that actually have a need that doesn't come up with any other segment. Uh-huh. If there are a lot of those, you have to realize that these segments are two entirely different markets and you almost need to completely separate the VOC effort into two separate studies. Right. What happens more often is you find different prioritizations. So both a both segments a let's say all three of segments A, B, and C state pretty much the same needs, but they prioritize them dramatically differently. When that happens, it means you can do the study all at once, but simply separate the the results of the studies. Then, of course, it's a separate question. Do we create separate products for each segment? Do we create one product but market it differently to each one? I, I mean, there's no easy answer to that. But yeah, the idea in segments is not all people think alike, and it's going to be important to understand the big differences. Very good. Okay. So we have one-on-one interviews, doing ethnographic research, and then mm-hmm. when you do those actual interviews, you're recording the responses, transcribing those, and then capturing needs, writing those needs up from the trans- transcriptions. What else is involved in how you do VOC? Okay. Uh, You literally go through either with your good old highlighting pen like us old guys used in college or the young people in the office all do it on the screen with the Microsoft Word uh, highlighting utility. Mm -hmm. You extract the phrases, put them into a database. You go through a process we call winnowing, which is basically just getting rid of the duplicates and some other things like proposed solutions that you've captured but aren't really needs. And try to get it down to that unique set of maybe perhaps about 100 needs. The second part of VOC is that affinity diagram. And one thing that we do uh, 
that is uh, prescribed by Griffin and Hauser is most affinity diagrams, this idea of bucketing the needs into groups that go together. Uh, most companies do that internally. So the product development team stands around a wall, they put up all the needs on yellow stickies, and they organize them into groups. Uh, Abby's research showed that customers are likely to affinitize differently hmm. from, the, from the way that people inside a company will. So we try to get customer involvement in the process of creating the affinity diagram. There are often some important differences. And then the final part of VOC is this prioritization survey, which is today most often done online. It can be done by telephone. Uh, but the idea here is let's try to get a somewhat larger sample size. We try very hard to keep the questionnaire short. All of the data I've ever seen from quantitative market research says that once a questionnaire goes beyond about 15 to 20 minutes, data quality declines, right. people are fatigued, they drop out, they start giving uh, fraudulent responses, etc. So it's a very simple survey in which they rate each of the buckets of needs, and there's usually something like 20 to 25 of those. They rate them for how important are each of the needs and how satisfied are they with whatever product or service or alternative they're using right now. And that completes the VOC process, and we're ready for analysis. Okay, let me ask you questions about those last, sure. last two steps. The affinity diagrams that you're trying to get the customers to create, these are creating the buckets of, of related needs in terms of how they see the needs being related, how they go together? Correct. Okay. Correct. And what do you tell them to do? Uh, the instruction is simply organize these needs into groups that you feel logically fit together. You can use any logical construct you like, but just bucket them by needs that are kind of related to one another. Okay. Uh, an example, by the way, of why this is different, uh, and, and this is, and Abby had told us about this, and we tried it ourselves, and she was dead right. I find, let's say you're developing some kind of a computer product. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you ask the internal team to organize the needs, they always create a separate bucket for what they call hardware problems versus software problems. Mm. When you do the same exercise with customers, they almost never make that distinction because they don't know. They don't know whether it's a hardware or software They're problem. just trying to get a job done. Exactly. And they don't care whether it's a hardware right. or software problem. They, they categorize their problems by type of problem. Okay. And do you do this in the, you know, the classic affinity diagram session, like you said, is, you know, big wall that the sticky notes, post-it notes can stick to. Do you try to do that in person with customers and let them do it that way? Or do you do it through online tools or, or what are you using? Well, there are many ways of doing it. If, if recruiting is easy, we use the method that was recommended in Griffin and Hauser, which is a uh, rather sophisticated, uh, um, uh, statistical technique. What we do is we get maybe 50 to 75 people to do it individually. They're, mm -hmm. they're recruited by telephone. We send them a kit. They can also do mm -hmm. it online and they create their own individual affinity diagram, wrap it in a, a rubber band, send it back to us. And then uh, the data is cluster analyzed to come up with a statistical version of the hierarchy. Now in a B2B case, that becomes prohibitively expensive. So we do everything from what you just described, which would be almost like a, it's like a little focus group mm -hmm. where a group of maybe eight to 10 people will create the affinity diagram as a group. 
where that becomes difficult, sometimes what we'll do is just ask three or five of the most uh, sophisticated respondents from the qualitative interviews to do it and merge it ourselves. Okay. So there are lots of ways of doing that. The The rule, though, is just get customers involved in that. Don't just do it internally. Right. Yeah. Because you are not the customer. Amen. And when it comes to the priority survey, uh, your guideline was, you know, try to keep it to 15 minutes or less, and you're ranking those buckets of needs. So out of the affinity di- diagram exercise, you have the 20 to 25 clusters, the buckets that come up. Mm-hmm. And are you asking them to rank them on like a Likert scale from you know one to ten, or are you are you doing in fifteen minutes? You, you can't do a one for one, you know, ranking no. um, type of a pairwise comparison. So, so how how do you do the rankings? Well, yeah, I mean there are a million possible ways of scaling it. Uh, the goal, what Griffin and Hauser suggested as the goal, is that the data data be ratio scaled. Hmm. Meaning if someone says this one gets a nine and this one gets a three, they're telling you this one is three times as important as the other one. So you can't rank order because that creates artificial intervals that aren't really there. Uh, You can't do constant sum if you have 20 or 25 attributes. So what we tend to do is uh, we use a 100-point scale for importance, Okay, so, and the most important need is usually up in the 90s, and the least important need might be in the 30s or the high 20s. For performance, we've tended to use a 10-point scale. Now, why the difference in scales? I I can't prove this to you, but we've always uh, suspected that people will confuse the two constructs. Mm. So we just said, let's use two different scales. Uh, The truth is you could use a 10-point scale on both or a 100-point scale or a 7-point scale. Uh, uh, market researchers will debate that endlessly. I don't think it's quite that important. And the difference between importance and performance, what are you looking for when you're asking them to rank performance? Well, the way we analyze it is to create a uh, an importance versus performance grid where uh, we map the needs, the 20 or 25 needs, on a grid where the axes are how important is each each need and how satisfied are they. If you then look at the quadrants, the four quadrants of this, what you find is the needs that are in the upper left, meaning those needs that have been rated high in importance but low in satisfaction, Mm -hmm. that's really where you ought to concentrate your effort. What you do with the other quadrants, though, also has good meaning. Uh, For needs that are rated high in importance and high in satisfaction, The goal there is maintain quality. It's not where you would put the great emphasis of your resources, but you can't slip either. Those those needs become table stakes. Mm -hmm. Then the other two are actually a bit more uh, interesting. What do you do with the lower right, meaning the needs they tell us are low in importance but high in current satisfaction? Well, you could ignore them, but we've also found that if you're trying to take cost out of a product – that's the safest place to do it. If you can if you can extract some cost from your product without totally killing performance, customers are probably going to be fine with that. Right. And then the final quadrant, which I, I think is always fascinating, are the needs that they rate low in importance but also low in satisfaction. Uh, because sometimes there are some hidden opportunities there. What we find is that... Su- 
a lot of those needs truly are unimportant, but sometimes there are needs that customers rate as unimportant because they simply think it can't be done. Hmm. And so they're giving, they're giving the vendor a pass saying, yeah, performance stinks, but I'll live with it because it stinks for everyone. Yep. Right. And someone finds a way to innovate. And with some of those needs, people say, yeah, no, it's still not important to me. And others, they look up and say, you know, maybe that was important. And before you know it, you've got a great point of differentiation. So uh, we always tell people you put the bulk of your effort in the high importance, low satisfaction needs, but look for those hidden opportunities where they're saying unimportant and performance is low. Okay. And, and that turns out, by the way, to be a very salient, very useful analysis, and it's really easy to do. And you have the two dimensions there to work with. Yep. And this is a question out in left field. I'm just curious. Yep. So some people that, and this is very rarely used, but have these two dimensions, they'll use a tool, analytical hierarchy process, for trying to come up with rating, really ranking the importance and the contribution that that makes to their overall satisfaction. Have you brought in, in that tool before? Do you look at it? You know, we haven't, but not because, you know, we think it's a terrible thing to do. Uh, it, it turns out that, that it makes the whole process quite a bit longer. Uh-huh. But the one the one good thing about the analytical hierarchy process is that it produces ratio scale data. Uh, but the questionnaire is usually rather long and involved. Right. And we've just sort of found it's probably not worth the extra trouble. Yeah. And like you said, if you have fall off in the survey responses and the the goodness, the credibility of those answers, then you're actually working against yourself. Exactly. Okay. So so that actually walks us through the process really well. Um, Are there any pieces left that we haven't dealt with? Well, one thing that, that, uh, let's say one of my pet peeves about the way in which voice of the customer is used is that it's used in the wrong part of the product development process. Uh, we're approached all the time by companies that come to us and say, you know, we've got three, three great ideas for new products. We just want to go out and do a VOC to make sure we're on the right track. And my response is, well, wait a minute. If you already have the ideas, you're into the stage of concept evaluation. Uh-huh. You already think you know the needs to address. So why don't you just go do concept evaluation? Now, if all of your ideas turn out not to be so great, then I'd back up and do a real VOC uh, to try to understand the needs. And the lesson in all of this is I think that a lot of companies err by starting with the idea. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote a paper called Rethinking the Product Development Funnel about that. You know, if you look at all of the other funnels out there from Bob Cooper to Wheelwright and Clark and so on, they say that the process begins with the idea. I think that's not the best way to go about it. I think you start off with voice of the customer, find the big unmet needs, and then ideate around solving those needs. Then your ideation process isn't just this free-for-all, hey, let's come up with lots of ideas, but rather they're focused on solving particular unmet customer needs. And I just find it's far more focused and far more productive to to understand the need first and then start brainstorming and ideating on what the solution ought to be. Okay. Gosh, we could make this a lot longer than, than <laughs> and we should not for the sake of our yeah. listeners. Real quickly, so I've been looking into you know lean startup for the last few years, uh, lean startup ideas and design thinking, and and look at the two and go. Th- there's a lot of similarities between these two. 
The only yep. real substantial difference that, and hopefully a practitioner can actually correct me on this, but the only real substantial difference that I find is design thinking is really targeted towards, I have a customer in mind, and I would just want to go understand what their needs are, you know, empathize with them, understand their stories, um, and start iterating on a possible solution for something. Whereas Lean Startup initially was really targeted for the startup founder, which has a basically a product concept already formed. Right. Right. And they're iterating around, you know, what's wrong with that concept, what's right with that concept. And when you were describing how VOC gets used uh, to, uh, for concept testing, it made me kind of think about that subtle difference. You know, where, where are we with starting with an idea versus a customer that we want to serve? Yeah, they're, well, they're not completely incompatible. The Well, for, first of all, let me say in design thinking, uh, by the way, one of my pet peeves is, I ask people, what's your definition of design thinking? And I never get the same answer. But the one thing that they do have in common is this idea of customer empathy. Mm-hmm. They have a little bit more of a touchy-feely way of understanding customer needs than what Griffin and Hauser prescribe or the way I do it. But we're really singing out of the same hymn. Mm-hmm. And that is, let's try to understand the customer in excruciating detail before we even start. So that part is fine with me. Uh, now, the lean idea, though, is, uh, at least the way I've generally seen it, is rapid prototyping. So we could start with a concept, talk to some customers, show it to some customers, tweak it a little, go back to some more customers, tweak it a little more. Uh, that's brilliant. Problem is that creating prototypes in B2B is really prohibitive. <laughs> In a lot of cases, or almost impossible, particularly if it's a new technology. Uh, you know, I, I, I spent the first part of my career in consumer packaged goods. It's real easy to keep iterating on a new flavor of soup. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's really inexpensive, and you can test it on people. You can't do that with medical devices. There's this thing called the food, and, the, the FDA. With before you start using products on humans, you know, you 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 got to go through a lot to do that. Right. So so. I guess I'm while I love the idea of rapid prototyping, it it's not always a practical thing to do. And so I think in all three of these, understanding the customer need is really a foundation. Mm-hmm. And how you do it, there are lots of ways to skin a cat, but you got to do it. Yep, absolutely. And I suspect some practitioners are probably jumping with us and talk about the different ways to do prototyping. That there's you know there, there's whiteboards and wireframes and. Yep. Different levels of fidelity that can be used. I've seen some foam core carved devices that look so real. Oh, amazing, right? You can't believe it's not until you touch it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just amazing things we can do. Very good. Well, I really appreciate you taking us through that clear step-by-step process for how you apply voice to the customer. Um, And starting, and I'm going to say it again because I just love the emphasis that we are starting with the stories that customers tell us and, you know, what made it easy, what made it hard, and what gets in the way. Uh, making this all customer focused. And I also asked you to share a quote with us, an innovation quote. Um, what what did you decide to bring and uh, why did you choose that one? All right. Well, a little, little preface to this. Uh, one of the most important principles in VOC is not to confuse the need and the solution to the need. You know, there's the old saw from... Uh, uh, um, Steve Jobs that says, uh, you know, no customer could have ever, uh, you know, customers don't know what they want until they see it. Well, 
that's confusing the need and the solution to the need. Hmm. I can remember the first time I flew to Japan carrying my CD Walkman and 10 CDs, and it was bulky and heavy and all of that. The need for portability was really clear way right. back then, but I never envisioned an iPod. Right. And so, uh, again, the idea is you got to separate the need from the solution to the need. And that leads to my uh, my favorite quote, and it's from the famous, uh, the late Ted Levitt, who was a uh, famous marketing professor at the Harvard Business School, who wrote a great paper in the late 60s called Marketing Myopia. Uh-huh. And in that paper, he says, customers aren't looking for a quarter-inch drill. They're looking for a quarter-inch hole. Right. And the idea here is uh, think about what a product does for you rather than the product itself. Now, there's a modern incarnation of this from Clay Christensen uh-huh. uh, in The Innovator's Dilemma. And, and what he says is um, uh, when customers have a job to do, they hire, and I love that word, hire products and services to do the job. Focus on the job first. The product comes later. And I think both of these are ways of saying, don't ask the customer for the solution. Understand the job they're trying to do, what they're trying to achieve. I call it often the task, the benefit they're trying Mm -hmm. to achieve. Then figure out the product. Believe me, there are a lot of, uh, yes, I could put a lot of effort into creating a superior drill bit. But you know what? There are other technologies to create a quarter-inch hole. You can do that with lasers and punch devices if it's a softer material. Figure that out later. Just understand what are the consequences of not having a really clean quarter-inch hole. Right. And keep, keep in focus what the customer is actually trying to achieve. You got it. Love the quote. Customers aren't looking for a quarter-inch drill. They're looking for a quarter-inch hole. Well, thank you for sharing that. How can listeners find out more about the work that you're doing? Well, uh, I mean, I'll mention our our website, which is uh, my my company is called Applied Marketing Science, Inc. So our URL is www.ams-inc.com. Okay. And my personal email address is uh, gcats, all one word, G-K-A-T-Z, at ams-inc.com. And I don't, do you use LinkedIn for people to contact you that way? Uh, yeah, I'm there too. Uh, I'll make your LinkedIn profile available on the show notes so people can get to that easy. Terrific. Terrific. And I'd, I'd obviously be glad to talk to people uh, if they have questions or comments uh, just as much as if you have business. So. Uh, when it comes okay. when it comes to the few handful of experts who truly know voice of the customer work, Jerry, you are in that small group, and I appreciate the work that you've done professionally and making it so clear for us on this discussion today, too. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for inviting me, Chad. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. To help other product managers and innovators discover this podcast, please take a minute and leave a star rating or a review on iTunes for The Everyday Innovator. Check out the everydayinnovator.com slash 071 for the summary and transcript of the interview. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to product innovation training your customers will love you for. To learn more, please check out the blog at the everydayinnovator.com. Keep innovating.